from what I hear, what I see in myself, in the world around me, in those I am in contact with, there's a growing sense of urgency, which probably each of you can feel as well, to help, to do what we can to touch the world with a little more kindness, to offer our gifts, small and insignificant as we may think them to be. The world is increasing and in complexity and speed, of course. And so deep within my own heart, and I hear and feel from others the need to touch the world with more slowness, with more simplicity, with more compassion. Just as strong as this, there is a growing spiritual urgency to go within. And that's why we're all here. And that's why many of us come over and over again to places like this, to go within, to go deep within so that we can realize, we can recognize, we can experience that which is before or perhaps beyond the reactivity we project out there in the world. We all want to come to a clearer view of how it really is. And we're learning how to do that. This is from uh, last year's Shambhala Sun, an Asian woman speaking about Buddhist women. Her name is Agnes Au, and she talks about the underlying pain in our hearts and opening to it. She says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. And so we're in that process here, opening to the forces that are assailed upon us, outwardly, inwardly, and especially in the mind and the heart, which create this inner terrain which we so intimately experience, but is not so well known. This inner terrain creates our outer terrain, creates a world outside of us. And so we're all creating this world from our inner world. And it's so sad to me how we miss the reality of things. We oftentimes, even for myself, of course, I know this because I'm there, I've been there, I'm not always in the place of seeing reality as it is. But it's sad for me to see that we often just live in each other's projections and not in how it really is, in our hearts, in their hearts. We're defending ourselves, we're blaming, and it goes round and round, layer upon layer, layer upon layer. 
we're discovering here what are those forces, what creates this inner terrain, which then creates that outer world, that outer terrain. What are the habitual inner forces that serve peace? We learn that experientially, not from someone telling us what to do, but for, from discovering it for ourselves, understanding for ourselves. Then we recognize that more clearly, what leads to peace, what leads to happiness, what are the causes there, and we incline towards that. We nourish that. That's part of our training here. We also realize what inner habitual forces create an inner ecology of disharmony, chaos, fear, hatred, unhealthy attachment. And hopefully we're clearer and clearer about this. We're able to face the defilements without fooling ourselves so that they're recognized more swiftly, relinquished in a way that's clean, not nourished, disarm, disarming what is harmful in ourselves. Without doing this kind of quiet investigation, this clear seeing of inner ecology, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the world. We can never even offer anything at all. We just offer more and more ignorance and projection to which others respond to in the same way. There can't be that very real possibility unless we take a look at ourselves, unless we open to what's going on in our own hearts. So tonight I'd like to speak about compassion. His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls compassion that inner disarmament. We're disarming ignorance, really. We're disarming greed and hatred. We're disarming all of that which, is, which gets projected in the world. And then we all live in that projection. So His Holiness says, Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear, nor see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. So we begin to know from our own experience that that's the only way we can really do it. We can try as much as we can to be of help out there, but unless we're coming from a clear, compassionate place, that help doesn't have the maximum strength, that potential it can have to truly make a difference in the world. Usually compassion is thought of as just in terms of saving others, actually. And we all together miss the point. We all together miss the very important first step. And that is the tender-hearted care and willingness to open to our own pain first. To open to that chaos in our own hearts first. to realize what are the causes of that pain there and to see whether they can be 
understood more deeply and relinquished so that we're genuinely an agent of peace, not just to the world, which we often think about, but to ourselves. Again, His Holiness says, Compassion is a feeling of closeness with a sense of responsibility. So this takes training and a skill set we're gaining confidence to do here in retreat. A few years ago, I was reading one of my old Dharma journals, and I asked Manindraji, my first Dharma teacher, what is the reason for living? What's the reason for my life? This was when I was in my 20s, my mid-20s. And he said, the reason for our lives is to develop compassion and wisdom, both. Not just that open-heartedness, but through that open-heartedness to develop a deep, abiding wisdom of seeing ourselves and the world clearly so that we live in alignment with that truth and we're not fighting it, so that we live tenderly with that truth precisely because there's so much pain and ignorance in the world. The wisdom comes about that precisely because of that, we must be more compassionate and not layer more and more blame, more and more hatred because of the, the hatred in the world. So both are necessary. It is said that there are two great wings of the Dharma, compassion, and wisdom. And if one of them is weaker than the other, then the great bird of truth will not fly. The great bird of healing will really not fly. We must be able to connect the two and to live in a world that's consciously connected to both of them, where one is developing the other and then that one is nourishing the other and then compassion nourishes wisdom more, and it gets deeper and stronger and more unshakable. There's a saying by Srinasargadatta that I, I just always remember and love. And he says, love tells me everything, tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. Between the two, connected to both. So what is compassion? There are many ways to describe it. One of the ways in the text is a quivering of the heart. A quivering of the heart in opening to what's painful, in opening to what's hurtful, in opening to suffering. And that quivering of the heart to me says that I'm alive. I'm not closed down. I'm not ignorant of it. I'm truly facing what's happening in the world. There's that vividness of being there with it all, and yet not in a way drowning in it. So it's to develop this Tenderness, this aliveness with tenderness and care to face what we have born, been born into, 
not just in terms of our family, which many of us spend a lifetime facing, opening to, being able to accept, and facing the uh, hardships that have come because of our, our family of origin. Not just in terms of family, but in a greater universal sense, to be able to face the universal fact of suffering. Because when we do this, something magical happens. And I've seen it happen in many a being where the suffering isn't personal anymore. It's a deeper sense of being universal. There's not this whole bit of pain that the world has to look at and wrap around creating a more and more solid identity with suffering in oneself. But it's an ability to open the heart wide and big and say, this is how it is in the world, not just with myself. So we face it with this kind of tenderness, yet courage. We get closer not push it away. We get more and more courageous to open to it, to not close down, to be close enough to it but not drowned in it, not suffocate in it. This allows for the wisdom of seeing the nature, the true nature of all of life. We're not so wrapped up in me and mine and I We're seeing it more at an elemental or universal level. And then it becomes lighter. So it's quite liberating as we go through the various levels. When compassion is with wisdom, it doesn't layer a veneer of denial on what's happening, nor does it layer any kind of anger or righteous indignation on it. Or sometimes we know that we layer a veneer of idealism onto life, that it should be this way, it should be that way, or it should not be this way. And it gets us all wound up. And we kind of fight what's happening in an unhealthy way, in a way that doesn't cause healing, but causes more disharmony and disconnection. So we layer those kinds of things on top of reality and not allow ourselves to see it as closely as it could be seen. Compassion with wisdom faces the rawness of the world, in our own hearts. I love being in India and places of Asia, my own home country of the Philippines. There's a rawness there that doesn't cover up what life is all about. I remember Upandita, Seda Upandita said one time that in America, suffering is covered with a veneer of glitter But that is so shallow. You know, people just come to retreat and it takes only so little sometimes to open to 
what's underneath that veneer. That glitter is all the distraction we have. But in places in third world countries in Asia, when I was in India recently, it's just wide open. The rawness of life is just right there in front of you. The opening to the truth of suffering you cannot help but see. It's a teaching, a great teaching, just to be in those places. Without this veneer of denial nor idealism, one's heart is more open, more present, more clear, non-reactive. How can you react sometimes? It's just so overwhelming when we really get close to our hearts. The only reaction that seems wise is the one of compassion. So when we're not adding anything more to what's going on except some care, except some tenderness, some compassion, we can truly see the reality, the rawness of our hearts. There is this sobering honesty and knowledge that comes about. As the Buddha says, just as I am bound to cycles of old age, sickness, and death, all beings are subject to old age, sickness, and death. This is the truth of life. And the more and more we open to this with compassion, the more and more we live in alignment with how it is. And our hearts come to be in a place of greater peace when it's like that. Compassion is an invitation, as Agnes Au says, to experience the vividness of life. It may not be sparkly and beautiful, but it's actually beautiful in its realness. Haven't you ever been with someone that's so refreshing because they're real. They're not adding a veneer, layering any kind of pretension over themselves, just being who they are. People that we meet in the marketplace, the old uh, beggar in Sarnath that um, I met with friends who would come to us when I was visiting Manindra a few years ago, and um, she was she didn't have very many teeth, and her hair was not washed, and she was wearing very bedraggled clothes, and she didn't smell very good. But she had a smile that would break your heart, and she was beautiful just because she didn't have a veneer of anything over her in my eyes, or my eyes didn't have a veneer of anything over her. She was just who she was in all her rawness and beauty. This kind of um, openness gives us a greater range of freedom to actually experience that kind of understanding, to not turn away, to not close down to places where we usually close down in our hearts and therefore in the hearts of others. Because, as I said, we then live in alignment with the truth instead of resisting it. 
Most of our tiredness comes from resisting the truth. People often wonder in times of retreat, I get sleepy and I've had enough sleep. What's going on? And sometimes I wonder and I might say out loud, maybe you're resisting something. And sure enough, it happens. There's some resistance going on to experiencing some difficulty in one's own heart. When we open to it, we get awake and alive. And life becomes more real to us. And the energy that is wasted in resistance is now used in opening to the truth. To know ourselves, our bodies, our minds, and hearts with this kind of sobering honesty, we feel intrinsically connected. We, be, we come to have a strength that we maybe have never felt before. This is from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy in your compassion. And he went on to quote Milarepa, Just as I intrinsically care for a wound in my own leg as part of my body, why should I not reach out intrinsically to heal and care for a wound in another as part of my own body. Accustomed to contemplating compassion, I have long forgotten all difference between self and other. And so when that all difference between self and other is gone, when that resistance, when that boundary is gone, there is such a strength that comes through a human being, that can be used for the benefit of all beings. In our culture, we're not accustomed to contemplating compassion. We're not accustomed to opening to the rawness of reality. We have every distraction available to us just to get busy to avoid what's there. When I'm in retreat and I find myself busy, as she spoke about last night, you know, getting the cup of tea, hanging out my laundry, sewing a button that fell off, finding another thing to do, weighing myself in that place where I found the scale. <laughs> Did I lose the 10 pounds yet? You know, all, I just find myself busy and I, I realize I'm avoiding something. I'm avoiding something here. You know, I'm distracted by every little thing I can do in order to not open to what's hurting in my heart. So I try to consciously stop and say, what, what's going on here? Why am I busying myself in this kind of a place? It's not easy. It's not something we're trained to do. Reality is stressful. I remember um, I pulled out this quote from Lily Tomlin, an actress and playwright. Reality is a major source of stress. I try to avoid it as much as I can. 
I see myself doing that when things get hard. You know, I have some training, of course, and I have enough to, to talk about it and to guide others, but I'm still on the path. The indirect, one of the indirect enemies, what is called the far enemy of compassion, is cruelty. Cruelty strikes out at what bothers us. Really, it's striking out at the unpleasant. The unpleasant is a feeling in our own hearts, but we think we're striking out at something out there. Really, it's striking out at an unpleasant experience or feeling that arises in our hearts in relationship to something that has happened out there. Or it could be in relationship to our own bodily pain or our own emotional state. We strike out with our speech sometimes, with our words. We strike out with bodily aggression. We strike out with our thoughts. Here we're not, we're in this um, honoring the noble silence. If we could hear everybody's thoughts, it would be worse than Grand Central Station. You know, everything that goes round and round and round. We strike out subtly by turning our backs on what is difficult. This is cruelty also. We all know some of us have had experience of the cruelty of physical abuse, then there's emotional abuse, and then there's um, the kind of abandoning abuse where there's a turning away from, and it has really put some wounds in our hearts, those silent, almost non-seen wounds, but they're really there. In the world, when we strike out towards others reactively, it doesn't give us a chance to see that we have a choice. We just take the first uh, feeling that comes up, out of habit usually, and we take that and we use it against what's bothering us in the world. And as I said in the first half, I've often wondered if you know, we really have freedom in, in this part of the world because we're not acting out of choice a lot of the times. We're acting out of habit because we don't stop long enough to see what's going on out of compassion and then make a wise choice out of what we should do. This is... a. Um, the Dalai Lama again speaking about compassion, about forgiveness, about reactivity. Tibetans reacted by attacking police, security forces, and innocent civilians. This made me very sad. It would be much more constructive if people tried to understand their supposed enemy. Learning to forgive is much more useful than merely picking up a stone and throwing it at the object of one's anger, the more so when the provocation is extreme. 
for it is under the greatest adversity that there exists the greatest potential for compassion to arise, both for oneself and others. Our enemies are our greatest treasures. They give us a chance to transform. I remember Joseph's story. You know, if uh, it goes something like, if you could win the lottery or have someone like your enemy uh, tell you what you're doing wrong, which would you choose? You know? Steve said he would win the lottery and then ask them to tell. <laughs> but it really is transforming lead into gold. You know, when we, when we just allow ourselves to understand our enemies, you know, to see where they're really coming from. So in practice, we're cruel to ourselves striking out at ourselves, judging ourselves, thinking that we're not good enough, inadequate, time and time again. This is something that I have to watch out for in myself a lot in practice. If we don't have a strong mindfulness of this, um, we can really get bogged down in striking out at ourselves. And this is when we stop in practice and we think we can't go any further. Oftentimes with this striking out of ourselves in practice, the most compassionate thing to do is to just stop and give ourselves some space. To just stop listening to those words, I'm not good enough, and just back off a little bit. During my first long retreat here for a few months, I was um, going through a really difficult time, and I decided to get a cup of tea and do my walking with a cup of tea. So I was walking between uh, the Catskills and the Annex in that corridor there. And it was so lovely just to have that cup of tea at one end, you know, and do walking meditation and just have some kind of soothing feeling. That was my way of backing off. But then the mind got busy, and I thought, well, if one cup is good, maybe I ought to have another cup at the other end. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was when I knew I was avoiding something, you know, getting busy, getting that other cup. So backing off, taking a walk in the forest, just taking a walk around the loop, listening to the birds, the wind, smelling the flowers. That's legal, as long as you're mindful. You know, you don't, you don't have to feel guilty about that. Just take your mindfulness with you. Back off, be compassionate with yourself, and then you'll learn how to be a little more tender with yourself. Where I practice in uh, Asia... In Burma, it really is strict, and I've had to learn ways to back off within that very strict atmosphere. 
you have to practice in the hall. It's, it's just the way that particular monastery is. You can't go to your room. Uh, you, you have to follow the schedule. If you're sick, you usually can't be sick in your room. You have to go to the doctor and lay down in the doctor's office. You have to be really sick, in other words. And there's a sign on when you get in, you know, in the bulletin board, because there are a lot of teachers that go there. And the sign says, there are no special people here. (laughs) Everyone has to follow the rules, something like that. So uh, there were ways I had to find out, you know, how can I back off? So I'm just saying all this to give you permission to, it's okay to be tender with yourself. One of the ways, which was, I don't know if it's, it's um, a little bit disrespectful, but anyway, I try to be as mindful as I can, bowing and taking a long time for each bow. You know, with each bow I would take refuge in the Buddha. Mm. <laughs> and then taking refuge in the Dhamma, and then just staying there for a while. (laughs) And then again in the Sangha. And it it just, it really helps. Bowing really helps. It humbles you. It also stretches your back. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of good about bowing. You should try it sometimes. It makes you really understand you can't do it alone. We don't know everything. Another small way I did it, you you have to do the walking practice. Here we have lots of opportunity to back off. But there, in the walking practice, you just had to do the walking practice in certain places. Not far, you had to do it close to the hall, and there's one walking area where you would go back and forth uh, on this cement covered by a tin roof, and at one end is a reservoir. And so I'd go to the end of the reservoir and I'd just stop and look out at the water, seeing, 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 and rest the mind and just take it away from the cacophony of all those, I can't do it, I want to go home, this is too much for me, I'm too old, you know. Just taking it to seeing, taking it to hearing, finding ways that you can rest the mind a little bit. bringing that tenderness to where I really need it, to my own heart, instead of blaming, you know, what's going on there, how they run the show there. That doesn't work. So we need an enormous amount of care for ourselves during these habit patterns of cruelty towards ourselves, which goes into cruelty towards others. The near enemy of compassion is, in the text, it's called grief. But in our vocabulary, grief is actually a healthy process. There can be a very healthy kind of letting go. We go through a particular process when we've lost something in our lives, our job, someone close to us, um, a sense of welfare, well-being, But this is an unhealthy kind of grief, an unwholesome kind of grief, when we're drowning in our suffering, when we don't really 
have the wherewithal to kind of uh, ride the waves out. Sometimes it's manifested as as, uh, self-pity. Oh, poor me, as Steve was talking about the other evening. And this can be really hidden, where we think we're feeling uh, pity or compassion for the other, but really we're feeling overwhelmed with pity for ourselves. It's often manifested, the self-pity is, gee, I can't do it. A sense of inadequacy. Sometimes I see that sense of inadequacy in myself is uh, masquerading that self-pity. Both in pity, self-pity, also in this unhealthy kind of grief, we're lost in the suffering. We're lost in the worry, in wanting it to be otherwise. It disempowers our ability to come close to the situation, kind of lead into it with our hearts, with our heads up, our eyes open, and seeing it clearly. You know, instead we're just contracted in various ways. It disempowers our ability to see the true value of life, of reality. Not just at that level, but at deeper and deeper levels. It limits us when we're in these places of overwhelming grief or pity. Once when I was with my daughter, um, my eldest daughter, and she had a little bit of a scare, um, and they, they, the doctor saw that she had some kind of uh, cancer growing in her uterus, And so um, she called me to be with her in the hospital while they did some surgery. And uh, she recovered from it, and she's well on her way now. There has been no recurrence. But during that time, it was overwhelming at times to me. I was in this place of pity. I was in this place of grief. Um, She had already talked to me about mom If I go, would you take care of my daughter? I really had to face all of those things. But when I got there to the hospital to help her out right after her surgery, she was really sinking into her own pain. She was drowning in it herself. And I was standing against the wall. You know, I did everything I could for her. And I was standing against the wall, and she was saying, Mom you got to get the nurses to come in here. they got to give me that painkiller. It's really late. They're supposed to be here a while ago, and they're not here yet. And so, you know, I just was doing everything I could. I blew up a little bit at the nurses out there, and I came back in, and I saw my daughter suffering and all the pain she was in. And um, she saw me just kind of slinking down on the wall. And... I was just crumbling inside. I didn't have that kind of courage that I wish I could have at that moment, but that's how it was. And so um, she saw that happen, and she got up her, you know. She's kind of an Amazon woman, really. And (laughs) she got up her courage, and she said, Mom, don't go there. I need you. Don't go there. You know, so I said, okay, 
okay. <laughs> so I got up enough courage to, to stay balanced and not disempowered so I could help her. And I went, of course I went in and out of that, but mostly I could help her. Mostly I could help her. There's an old uh, Burmese story, it might be stories in other countries too, about how sometimes without true compassion and wisdom, we try to help someone who's sinking in quicksand, but we help them by jumping in the quicksand ourselves. We don't really know what to do because we we're just don't have it together enough. There's a, a phrase that we use in the compassion practice, which will begin tomorrow. And the phrase goes like this. It's more of a, our Western adaptation of the um, traditional phrase. I care about this pain, or I care about your pain. And in the compassion practice, what we want to do is to... Um, center ourselves in the care part of that understanding, to really ground ourselves in the care part and not jump into the quicksand of the pain. And that's what it's like when we care about this pain, when we're going to it with our eyes open, our hearts leading the way, not concaved in, but just really leading up there with our courage and helping with all of our ability, but we're not jumping in the quicksand. We're staying at the side, at a distance where we can see clearly, but close enough to help. We're not getting lost in the suffering. So in practice, it's bringing our attention very skillfully in this way to whatever is painful, It might be any one of the hindrances, the very manifestations of hatred, aversion, terror, fear, attachment, holding on, being really opinionated, restlessness, doubt, even sleepiness, sloth and torpor. How can we open to it with tenderness and yet just that energy of fearlessness? Of courage. It's said that compassion transforms suffering in our hearts, the only place we can truly do it. It transforms suffering into wisdom. From there, we can help others. Without that, our help is really short lived, not so strong. One more thing about the things that hurt us in life, whether it's from out there or just something that is continually being triggered from within, from ourselves. We can get so used to them that they become our identity. The, oh, poor me. I'm this single parent. This is me. Single parent of three children under six years old, and I was abandoned by their father. With little money, I came to America, and I had the good fortune 
to meet Manindra, who said, Stop it. Stop talking like that. Stop it. You're forming. He didn't say this like that. He did say stop it. But in so many words, he says, you're forming a solid identity around that. And that's something we have to live with over and over and over again. That pain of identification that attachment to a sense of self that could be long gone. And if you have someone fortunate and if you're fortunate to have someone in your life to say, enough. Or maybe someone tender that says, open to that pain. It's not as solid as you think. William Stafford says, this pain, they turn into pearls. They take on a luster. They accumulate as decorations, as earrings to wear, as badges, as a solid sense of self. That's, those are my words. We must be careful about doing this about opening to suffering in ourselves and forming a sense of self around it. More suffering there. Much more suffering there. About opening to the suffering in the world and thinking that we're going to save it and forming an identity around being some kind of savior Um, in that way. We must be careful about that. Our teachers allow the pain to get exposed. It's very difficult. I've seen my own teachers allow it to come out in myself, and I see it in this role that I'm in sometimes, when it comes out in others, in you all. And I know that it's important that it come out. And all we can do is give You hand down the skills to you that we have learned in order to open to them. And one of those great skills is the skill of compassion. I asked Manindraji once, why does it hurt? Why does it hurt so much to do this? And he said, because you're disentangling the tangle. And upon doing that, you know, what's been held so tightly, when it disentangles, pain comes out of that. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Buddha answered, One established in virtue, wise, developing the mind with wisdom, who is one who is ardent and discreet. This person can disentangle the tangle. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.